Welcome to another Use of Force. This week we are walking through Greenwood Cemetery, and just outside of Greenwood Cemetery is our next instance of Use of Force. So this incident happened on April 1st, 2010, and a man named Michael Romero was shot and killed by NYPD. And I'll start out by reading the use of force report that is reported by the New York City Police Department. On April 1st at 1413 hours, in the confines of the 72nd precinct, plainclothes officers were canvassing for a robbery suspect with a sketch and photo in hand. They observed a male Hispanic subject who they believed resembled the suspect and attempted to address him from their unmarked vehicle. As the vehicle operator called to the subject, the two other officers in the vehicle exited and positioned themselves at the front and rear of the automobile. The subject suddenly and aggressively approached the vehicle, saying, You want my fucking ID? I'll show you my fucking ID. At the same time, he reached into a bag that he was carrying and withdrew a silver revolver, which he pointed into the car and at the officer in the driver's seat. A brief struggle ensued, but was ended when the female officer positioned at the front end of the vehicle fired a single round, striking the subject and causing his demise. The subject's weapon, a loaded 357 caliber Rossi revolver, was recovered, as was a stolen 44 caliber Ruger revolver, also on his person, several bags of marijuana, and in excess of $2,000 in U.S. currency. The subject had 39 prior arrests for offenses including robbery, burglary, and criminal possession of firearms. The subject had cannabinoids in his system at the time of the incident. So, as we always do, we researched as much as we could outside of the police report to find out what the reporting said happened and to try and build a clearer, more rounded picture of this incident. Mm -hmm. So one thing that was in some of the reporting that wasn't in the NYPD report is that the person that these two officers was were looking for, it, it said that it was for robbery, but I, I read also that the person they were looking for had shot someone with a pellet gun. Mm-hmm. So that's just a little bit extra. Um, it makes me think that, I don't know, maybe I, my first thought is that maybe it's a slightly higher alert, but then... I'm not sure. It's also, you know, a pellet gun. Mm -hmm. The other thing that is, I think, an important thing to note that is a slightly more information is that the gun that Michael Romero pointed at the officer that was in the driver's seat of the car, um, his name was Sean Kelleher. He, Romero pulled the trigger on his gun as it was aimed at the officer's face. And some reports say that the gun misfired. Some other reports say that 
it was a um, empty chamber. Mm-hmm. They say, some other reports say it was a six-chamber gun with only five bullets in the chambers, and it just happened to be the empty one. So, yeah, I guess in this in this particular incident, what happened is that the police officers were asking for Mike for Michael Romero's ID because they thought he looked like someone they were looking for, and. It does seem from both the police report and from all the reporting that he just immediately pulled out the gun and tried to shoot one of the officers. And that's when the other officer came around the car and ultimately shot him. Mm -hmm. And honestly, there wasn't actually that much else about the incident itself. The things that were additional information came from interviews with Michael Romero's family. So according to his aunt, him and his mother were both paranoid schizophrenic. Right. His mother takes her medication, Mm -hmm. but he never was taking his medication because he said it made him feel drowsy and made him feel like he was walking in a cloud. Mm -hmm. And The aunt also said that the reason that he had those guns on him was because of his disease. Yeah. And I guess because he was paranoid, schizophrenic, he, you know, I'm I'm sort of putting that the pieces together there from what she said, but you know, he probably thought he had to defend himself or Right, yeah, that would be the assumption there. Yeah. That there's some paranoia involved and the presence of marijuana in his life not necessarily in his system i mean the just saying that there's cannabinoids in the system doesn't mean that he was high at the time right i mean it's possible that he was but that is kind of not the most useful information it just paints a picture like many of the use of force reports do right but Nevertheless, marijuana and schizophrenia is a not a good combination. Not a good combination. No, not I don't believe so. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, and I guess in this interview with his aunt, you know, I think it's it's very common as you could imagine for family members to be distraught and to be upset with the police. The aunt said that she thought that the police had handled this poorly and that they should have just tackled him instead of shooting him so quickly. And, you know, she said he didn't shoot anyone. So why did they shoot him? Right. Which is difficult for me in this particular incident. I obviously would like to see no one killed. I think Obviously, I wasn't there, and I'm, I feel like I say this all the time, but obviously I'm not a trained police person. Um, I would have no idea how to stop someone from shooting someone or, you know, anything like that. But this does seem like a really difficult situation, considering he 
did have a gun in the face of this police officer and the other officer was protecting her her partner and probably herself as well um and it seems like when it's sort of that close i can imagine it like any wrong move could have resulted in the death of the officer as well yes i agree based on the events as they are recounted that it is a difficult situation and i can empathize with the family that feels that something some better intervention could have occurred of course the way that the story is told seems like that is a very difficult thing to imagine it also does interest me that for whatever reason the information about the gun misfiring or there not being a bullet in the chamber is not included in the use of force report right and that's a good point it's just it just goes right to the struggle yeah which in well it says that he pulled out a silver revolver pointed it into the car at the officer in the driver's seat and then it says a brief struggle ensued yeah which is to say that there's nothing about they didn't the trigger being fired yeah which to me would suggest that they are maybe not super happy with how they approached him you know like Mm -hmm. that the 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 there was a failing in that respect yeah well i am a little surprised by that i don't honestly i don't really understand why I don't know. It's just hard for me to picture walking down the street and having two officers yell from their car. An unmarked car. At someone to show their ID. Yeah, an unmarked car. It It's confusing to me why they wouldn't have gotten out of the car, showed their badge. Yeah. Had I think... some sort of interaction that's sort of... Yeah, it's just it, that part of it does seem strange that they wouldn't have been out of the car. I think it's as much a failure or a potential failure insofar as they the officers behaved in a way that endangered their own life Mm -hmm. as much as it might be that their actions were inflammatory i mean it could be that either one of those things was a failure right in either event it seems like pertinent information that's being left out in order to tell a story that is more favorable to the police that might be why yeah i i don't know but that that seems to make sense nevertheless as the story is recounted it's tragic yeah as many if not all of these stories are and yeah the idea of there being a struggle involving a gun it it's very difficult to imagine a scenario where you can ask a police officer to to do something that isn't protecting their partner. Yeah. And in the reporting, too, just to add some information to what that struggle looked like, it said that it 
at one point in that moment, the officer that was in the driver's seat that had the gun pointed at him wound up with his fingers in the... The barrel. Yeah, in the barrel of the gun to try to stop a bullet that would possibly be coming out. Right. So, I don't know, that just makes me feel like it was must have just been so frantic. Yeah. Also. Yeah. Um Yeah, the family obviously was upset, but it doesn't look like there were any charges um press or any lawsuit. Yeah. Because I looked up the officers on um Capstat and mm-hmm. nothing showed up. The officer that that ended up killing Romero doesn't have any lawsuits against her at all. And she does have a pay history since 2004. It looks like she's still on the force. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, we've talked about this before, but Michael Romero had 34 arrests prior to this. And multiple were for gun crimes already. Mm-hmm. He also had an arrest for theft and also assault unfortunately of his daughter but it seems like you know we talk about the aunt being upset that the officer didn't tackle him instead of shooting him I personally do think that by the time it got to that point it was too late I don't I don't really blame the officer for doing what she did in that moment but I do think that if you have someone that you've arrested 34 times multiple times for guns you must know the mental health history of this person or the you know the mental health diagnosis of this person as well it is just so troubling to me to try and understand why how this could happen (laughs) like this this man was also um in his 30s Mm-hmm. So, which is on the older side for a lot of what we see. That's true. Not the oldest, but on the mm-hmm. older side. That's true. But also, to be arrested 34 times by the time you're 32 years old. Yeah. Yeah. He was, uh, he the, was in the system in yeah. many ways, both in the system of our law enforcement and in the system of a society that perpetuates that type of behavior. Right. Right. And I, I don't have the answer for it, but I, the thing that upsets me the most really is that this person was obviously known to have a lot of, be having a lot of trouble in many different ways, both by his family and by the police and maybe by more than that and yeah I just don't know it just seems like we don't really have a way in our society to deal with this sort of disease that people have and this this sort of trouble that that many people are struggling with yeah and I think I also can't, I can't know for sure why, you know, if the family knew that their family member was 
a paranoid schizophrenic and was carrying around guns, obviously that puts him in danger. It puts other people in danger. It puts him in danger. I do wonder why there wasn't, like, outreach from the family, but I also can understand that if you've also seen your family member arrested 34 times, maybe calling the police, they don't, they don't come back and they're, you know, they're, they're not really helping. Yeah. If you're just, when you call about the gun, they just arrest your family member and it's a cycle over and over. I can imagine how that would just be draining and feel hopeless. Yeah. As well as how you have an argument or convince a person that is insistent on carrying a gun. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that's a very scary situation. Yeah. Scary because they might threaten you with it. Scary because of your fears of what they will encounter out in the world. Yeah. And the same with taking medication. You know, the fact that his mother was also paranoid schizophrenic and was, but was medicated for it. Um, I'm assuming that that helped her. I guess it wasn't clear, but you know, I don't know how you can't really, you can't force someone to take medication. Um, and especially for a mental health disease. Yeah. It's really tricky. Yeah. Well, we've talked several times about how the goal is to take systemic errors and remove them from the equation so that percentage-wise these types of incidents go down. Yeah. And I would say that when the legalization of marijuana arrives in earnest, that that will be a relief for what this situation may have been. Mm. I mean, he had marijuana present with him. Uh, he may have felt threatened or concerned about that. And oh. certainly, huh, that's interesting. If he was, in fact, high at the time, there's a paranoia that would be coming with that as well. And that paranoia could be alleviated to a meaningful degree in a society where there aren't the same consequences. That's true. As there were, in, even in 2010 to now, there's right, a difference. Right, exactly. I was just going to say that. This was in 2010 where I believe it was still a, well, there was, a stri like some kind of, I wanted to say a felony, but I, I think it was a pretty high strike and possibility I mean, of being jailed yeah. for possession of marijuana. Right, of a certain amount as well. And so it, for somebody that is schizophrenic, that can be very much playing on their minds. It could be, yeah. And that would remove, again, a certain percentage of these types of incidences happening. Yeah. Which is what we need to be identifying. Right. And also, you know, this is broader thought, but kind of a, an addendum to that idea. When you talk about reducing percentages of problems, there's also this idea of people that just inherently don't fit inside our systems. And that is difficult because every type of solution that we're thinking about, it is in the context of systems. Mm. 
trying to create systems to prevent these things from happening. And those systems are being thought of by people that are almost always good navigators of the system. And it can be hard to put yourself in the mindset of somebody that is not good at navigating systems. And how do we create systemic solutions that are not systemic, you know? Yeah. Or not, that don't cater to people that are already good navigators of the system. I mean, 34 arrests, that is somebody that doesn't even have a strong concept of what the system is, because if you did, you would not be arrested 34 times. You would find a way to navigate around those problems more frequently. Mm, probably, yeah. Yeah, I, I think it, 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 that is a challenge, certainly, especially, I mean, there's to some degree, you know, everyone has to be responsible for themselves, but we also are living in a society. We're choosing to live as neighbors. We're choosing to live in cities with each other. And so we also need to be responsible for each other. And we need to create environments where everyone can thrive. Yeah. And, you know, there are communities all over the city that are able to survive and thrive and have their own cultures that don't exist inside whatever the rigid systems are. Yeah. And trying to find, trying to listen to them more and understand how they manage to make things work and possibly find a way to incorporate that into our larger systems. I think that's, I think what you just said is really probably a big part of it, the listening. And I think a lot of the people that are building the systems are sort of this type A person that really sort of has things organized and has a, just a flow chart for their whole life. And those people are really good at putting together lines of production and making things efficient. But maybe we do need to listen to people that aren't that organized type of person, but rather someone that either has had significant struggles or is currently struggling and figure out, actually listen, what is it that you need? What is it that would be helpful? And then adapt to figure out how we can support those needs, as opposed to saying, here's what we can give you, make this your need. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, that does it for this week. As always, if you have interest in this particular use of force instance, if you know yourself more about Michael Romero's story, uh, please reach out to us. We are interested in always learning more about any one of these given cases. Um, Until next time, take care. Bye. Bye.